0: Hello, and welcome to the Blue Marble Podcast, a program of the Circle Sanctuary Network Podcast's CSNP. I'm your host, Reverend Charbert, Circle Sanctuary Minister and Facilitator of the Green Faith Circle Ministry here at Circle Sanctuary that is committed to education about the climate crisis, climate justice, and eco-activism today. In 1972, the last Apollo mission took a photo of the Earth that showed the big picture of our water-based planet. This image was named the Blue Marble, and it was the very first time humankind had seen such a photo of our planet home as a whole. Now, this photo has become the iconic image for the Earth Day movement and the environmental movement since then. In 2022, the climate justice movement is the overarching environmental and social justice movement combined that is fighting for the planet and for the systemic socio-political and economic changes needed now to transform the crisis. Blue Marble podcasts to look at the many different aspects of this global movement with special guests who help us to understand what is happening and maybe what we can do about it. My special guest today is someone whom I can rely upon to examine the science thoroughly and responsibly. Dr. Campbell Scott, PhD, is a fellow with the American Physical Society. That's a nonprofit organization of scientists in physics and related fields. Campbell was also an assistant professor of physics at Cornell University from 1975 to 1980. And he has been a research staff member at IBM in San Jose from 1980 to 2020. I'm so glad that you are here with us today, Campbell.
1: Okay, thank you very much for having me.
0: Can I call you, Campbell?
1: Oh, yes, please do.
0: Absolutely. And thank you for helping people to understand something about nuclear power. It's currently renewed interest uh, in it as a potential energy source. It's back on the table, and there are pros and cons uh, about that prospect. So. I want to stress to our audience that uh, Campbell does not work for the nuclear industry in any way. He's not a lobbyist or advocate for the nuclear industry. He's a scientist, and that is why he's able to provide us with a clear and neutral evaluation of this potential power source that's in the news. So to kick it off, um, Campbell, how did you become a scientist anyway, and why are you passionate about science?
1: Well, it, it all started in my childhood. I was one of these kids who liked to take things apart and uh, put them back together again. <laughs> and when they were back together, they had to work. So, so that was that was when it was raining, uh, and I had to stay inside. Uh, Not since Scotland, that was quite a lot of the time. But I, uh, but when it wasn't raining, I lived in a fairly rural area, so I go out and. And play in the fields and go look for fish in the ponds and the streams, and so I became very much aware of the environment even mm. even as a kid, mm-hmm. and uh, and also what could happen to it because not far from where I lived there was coal fields, and mm. uh, mine tailings all over the landscape that uh, then had uh, coal runoff and it stunted plants and things didn't grow in that area. So mm. yes, I became very much aware. In my childhood, uh, then when I was a teenager, my parents got me a, a, a subscription to a, a magazine that uh, you kept all the copies, and it became an encyclopedia. That was a, called the Encyclopedia of Science. So they wanted to encourage me, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from there on, it was it was fairly conventional. I took science in high school, went on to do a bachelor's degree at the University of St Andrews, did my graduate work at the University of Pennsylvania, got a, a, an assistant professorship first, uh, and then thought I would try industry and move to work with IBM uh, here in San Jose. So, so, uh, so that that's the background, and, and uh, it's, as I say, the, the after they start, it was pretty conventional, but that, I think, the, uh, from my very young childhood.
0: In Scotland. In Scotland, yes. And, and that's near and dear to my heart because, I, and a lot of Americans say this, but really, truly half my heritage is Scottish. And I spent high school and, <laughs> uh, in St. Andrews at Madras College. Right. <laughs>
1: um,
0: and beautiful, beautiful countryside and a lot, of, a lot of transformation and the energy journey in Scotland itself. Um, but now, how did you get involved in becoming a climate communicator?
1: As a scientist, scientist, uh, first of all, I was an educator. I taught at Cornell. Uh, And then even after I left Cornell, I would uh, give lectures to some of the surrounding universities near here, guest guest lecturing and advising students. As I got to know faculty members here, I would co-advise various uh, thesis topics or whatever for uh, seniors, uh, master's students, PhDs. and i also would be giving uh, talks at conferences so you know to audiences of of my peers presenting scientific research so i was very comfortable both with the education side and the science side and speaking in public uh, so i thought the climate reality project would be uh, a good place for me to uh, to use that background uh, and and, and my interest in the environment and, and latterly climate change as that became clearer uh, in the, from about the turn of the century. Uh, so that's what I do now that I'm retired, uh, try to use my, uh, my background and my skills.
0: And, and I just want to interject here um, for our audience, the Climate Reality Project was started by former Vice President Al Gore, and it's committed to training up climate activist leaders all over the world. Um, and Campbell, you are also uh, the Speaker's Bureau um leader for the silicon valley chapter of that right exactly
1: that is is correct yes and
0: before i move right back into nuclear power what's what's become really important is uh scientist rebellion um calling (laughs) out scientists all over the world now to really be speaking from your uh point of expertise it's a it's a whole part of the, the an emerging part of the climate justice movement that's um kind of launching in a big way this season
1: Yes, Uh, and unfortunately, we have to counter a whole lot of uh, what I call pseudoscience that uh, is used by people who want to continue uh, business as usual and and, and not make the necessary transition to renewable energy. Right. Um Right.
0: so many uh, listening in the audience. When we talk about renewable energy, you know, we we have we have memories of fighting nuclear energy, and certainly nuclear arms production in the late 20th century. The No Nukes movement has been the rallying cry of many activists in the peace and justice and environmental movements, and uh, many folks still feel haunted by incidents at Three Mile Island. Uh, Chernobyl is back in the news because of Ukraine. Fukushima. The fallout still and the prospect now of embracing nuclear power as a source of, of clean energy seems like incredible. Um, so for many listeners in our audience who are not scientists, how might you explain nuclear power today? Can you give us the, the nuclear power 101 overview?
1: So the, the nuclear power comes, as, as you might think, from the nuclei of, of certain heavy elements. And the conventional power generation uh, using uranium primarily to start with uh, releases a whole lot of energy, about a million times more than chemical energy per atom. So it's, it's really a very concentrated source of energy. Uh, so the, the, uh, the, the, the atoms split apart, and as they do so, they release all of this excess energy uh, that is then captured uh, in the end to boil water and drive a steam tur- turbine. So it it really is after, after the nuclear piece of it, uh, more or less conventional steam generation and uh, and uh, and a turning a, new, uh, a turbine, an electric generator. Uh, so the 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 issues are. Really historical. The the uh, nuclear energy really started coincidentally with the the end of the Second World War that uh, had nuclear the first nuclear bombs. Uh, and and it's it's the same reaction a nuclear reaction just one is controlled and the other one is not controlled. Uh, so in a gener- in the generator in the nuclear electric plant. Uh, it's a controlled reaction, and it does not explode. It, it cannot explode, uh, but it can overheat, <laughs> and so the accidents that we hear about are overheating events. So, uh, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, uh, Fukushima, when they lost the cooling because of the uh, the tsunami. Uh, so that's that's the danger, and again. Cold War era, uh, the design of these of, of the, all of these nuclear plants was really based on what was ne- considered necessary by the military during the Cold War, because these reactors and that design uh, produce plutonium, and plutonium is an even better nuclear bomb fuel than. Uranium 235, which was used up up to then, uh, so making uh, plutonium as a byproduct of electric generation was encouraged by the the military, uh, even although the nuclear power is in the in the private sector for the most part. Uh, they wanted the plutonium, uh, so that's in a nutshell why nuclear energy got such a bad name it, it sort of grew alongside the, uh, the, the Cold War militarism uh, so
0: kind of part of the arms race as a yeah, yes as a, so all part race. of the arms uh-huh. race mm-hmm. and they'll, mm-hmm.
1: they'll, uh, but it does not need to be that way there are new designs of reactors that are much safer uh, in terms of avoiding meltdown particularly because mm. it's the meltdown that releases the radioactivity, and that was the, the the case at Chernobyl. The others actually released very relatively small amounts of of radioactivity into the atmosphere. Fukushima, to some extent, Three Mile Island, hardly any. Uh, so, but now we have reactor designs that are considered fail-safe against. Against meltdown that will release ra- radioactivity. It it doesn't mean they don't have a mess to clean up afterwards, but it's contained in the in the nuclear plant.
0: Yeah, because in the Cold War there was a lot of waste.
1: There, so waste is the other issue, mm. and uh, that same uh, fuel cycle we call it that starts with uranium 238 bred to be plutonium. Uh, also produces a whole lot of uh, long-lasting waste, nuclear waste that is radioactive uh, for thousands of years, even tens of thousands of years. There are other fuel cycles that have been explored and, and even were available if chosen to use them in the, in the 50s. Uh, and that is uh, it still produces waste, but it has a, a lifetime of more like 300 years, which you know it's, it's a long time for somebody to, to have yeah. some some in, some in their vicinity, but it's uh, it's a whole lot less than uh, than, than 10,000 years.
0: Oh my goodness! Right. Um, okay, so we've heard and spoken often about how the climate crisis is an existential crisis. We hear it all the time. Something that could drive our species to extinction and take out a lot of others with us. And people used to say that about nuclear war, nuclear armaments, and to some extent then nuclear power. So you've you've alluded to this, but can you say more about how is nuclear not inviting an even worse or more rapid existential crisis?
1: Well, it it is. the the existential crisis is really from nuclear weapons, from this uncontrolled explosion of these balls of plutonium or balls of uh, uranium-235 or, or other thing, that is controlled now in reactors, and and so without firing weapons at each other, uh, there's not going to be an existential crisis. It's 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 contained. It's uh, it's a disaster, but a relatively local one, not a you know, so Eastern Europe when. Chernobyl went off. I mean, they had fallout all the way to Sweden and the, and the Baltic countries. Uh, but that is, that is not ruining the, or destroying the entire planet the way a nuclear war would. Uh, so, okay,
0: so, so just to interject, when we say yeah. existential, then you're talking about a global wipeout.
1: I'm talking, to like I'm talking about the, yeah. the existence of uh, of a whole lot of life on the planet. I mean, right, a, right, right. cockroaches might survive. Maybe even some humans who found a place to hide away for a for a few hundred for a few years uh, would survive. Yes, I'm, I essentially I mean existential in the original right. sense of the word. It is we would cease to exist or or come very close to extinction.
0: And so when you say contained, we're talking more about a regional disaster that still could happen, but it's not what you're talking about. With uh, that, that's okay. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's, okay. it's <laughs> we can ignore it, but, uh, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't mean the entire planet's worked out. Uh, so. It, it, so it's a matter of the localization of the threat, uh, but as I said, there are better ways of of designing nuclear reactors. And and one is not, so, okay, another technical point. Uh, They use water as the coolant in the reactor itself. And water turns to steam and it heats up, that steam gets to higher and higher pressure. So really what, quote unquote, explodes in that case is the steam reactor, the steam vessel that's containing this boiling water Uh, that is used to drive the turbine. So what what the modern designs use are liquid coolants, like liquid sodium, it's a metal. Uh, That doesn't boil until really very, very high temperature. So using that as a transfer from the reactor itself to the water boiler, sort of an intermediate loop of of heated fluid going from the reactor into the boiler, that reduces enormously the possibility of a of a high pressure steam driven uh, explosion or rupture of the rupture of the uh, of the core. Uh, so the, is, that,
0: is that an improvement over and I see a, you're going to talk about it, but is that an improvement over some of the older models of reactors?
1: Yes, and, and again, it goes back to uh, to the. Cold War, So that was essentially designed for submarine use. So it's a small, small reactor could go in a submarine. It is is, uh, suitable for for mobile vehicles like that. Uh, And uh, you may have heard of Admiral Rickover. He insisted that his Navy have this kind of reactor, because it would fit in the submarines. (laughs) So it, wow. It's it's all part of the history that got us where we are now, and mm-hmm. it could have involved, evolved in a very different way uh, mm-hmm. with, without a war and then you know, the, a, a shooting war and then the Cold War uh, that followed it. Um, decisions were made that were really driven by, by military considerations.
0: hmm hmm so so by contrast, nuclear power today is, is using carefully controlled chain reaction, and it's ensuring no runaway then?
1: Uh, it can still run away if the cooling fails. And so the, the three major disasters that we talked about, and there are several other minor ones, were all failures of the cooling system because the coolant was water. Uh so now we have molten, molten material, molten salts and molten metals uh, that, don't, that don't boil and don't get to high pressure in the core. They produce high pressure in a separate vessel, high, high pressure steam in a, in a separate container altogether, not, not directly connected to the core. So, it, and, uh, and they can have passive cooling as well where the, the thing circulates. Because of gravity and their hot hot fluid rising, uh, under its under spontaneously rising under its own gravitational uh, effects. Uh, So again, when there's a power failure, the 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 coolant will keep circulating. Doesn't need an external power source to drive it around the, uh, the the system. And that's what happened in Fukushima. The 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 core didn't melt down until the power went out. Uh, so the tsunami knocked out the the uh, the electric uh, power that was circulating the coolant. So not not really a nuclear event. It was really a a, a power outage.
0: Massive <laughs> in the, power outage that in disabled the coolant in the,
1: in the, within the nuclear plant. Yes. Oh, wow.
0: Wow, so much about the power grid. And, and so, okay, so then we're talking locally about the release of radioactivity in, in terms of like a molten mass of radioactive material. But, but what about the dust that goes into the atmosphere?
1: Well, that is all part of the steam explosion, not necessarily, and in fact, not a nuclear explosion. It's the high-pressure steam that ruptures the containment vessels And and whatever is there accumulated, uh, probably eventually waste hidden and and stored and disposed of. So that uh, that steam explosion carries dust into the atmosphere uh, that then blows on the wind and goes goes across the the landscape and eventually settles. And and that's why there's radioactive soil all around uh, Chernobyl and, and maybe even still some in the Baltic countries.
0: Thank you for explaining that. Now, did you want to say more about better ways to design these reactors in a non-military context?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah. So I talked about uh, the, the, the circulating coolant that carries the heat from the core to the water boiler, being a, a liquid metal or molten metal or molten salt. And, and that can be automatically drained out of the, out of the system and and essentially shutting down the reaction and containing that that molten material in a pan underneath the reactor and the way that works is to have what's called a freeze plug like like the plug in the bottom of some truck engines that release the the water out of the out of the engine when it overheats and it just flows onto the Tarmac and cools off there. Well, that with a concrete pan underneath the reactor, you can have a plug that melts, releases the fluid, uh, the, the liquid coolant. It spreads out in the pan and cools relatively quickly and avoids overheating. So, uh, and that is then all contained within the within the the reactor, within the power plant itself. It's a mess to clean up. But it's it's uh, well-contained and very little, if any, chance of uh, radioactive emission getting into the atmosphere.
0: So, again, thank you. And to our audience, this is all the really detailed technical stuff, which is why I love talking to Campbell and why it's so important, especially with respect to scientist rebellion, that people listen to actual scientists talking about actual science and not pseudoscience because it's so easy to get so much of this wrong. Um, So just to be clear, then, when we're talking about nuclear energy as a potential power source, people are talking about having to redesign, retrofit or create new different designs for nuclear reactors, not going back to the the mistakes of before.
1: That is that is correct. Yes. And there's a whole lot of research going on and even some prototype uh, power plants being built already with these new designs, but they are, they are new and therefore they're not Mm -hmm. fully certified by Mm -hmm. government authorities and so on. So they're they're going to be a a while. It's going to take a while until these are rolled out in any sort of Mm -hmm. numbers. And uh, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, we don't really have time. So this, this, could be uh, an energy of the future but it's and it could be even coming in place in the thirties and forties, but it is not here yet as a as a as a fuel that we can just switch to immediately
0: so it's not like an interim we're talking twenty thirty twenty forty okay
1: yes but, that the, that I, that's my own personal opinion, but that you know just based on the length of time it takes to uh to do the science, to make sure everything is in fact fail-safe, as, as described. Uh, and to get uh, plants uh, certified to be constructed uh, and to get place to put them with local ordinances and, and uh, all the pushback that's going to come from nearby populations, it's going to take a while. So yes, it, nuclear could come and nuclear could be safe and even relatively inexpensive. But uh, my opinion is it's not on a timeline that's mm. going to be fast enough uh, mm-hmm. to replace fossil fuels at the speed we need to.
0: Mm-hmm. And so pivoting now to fossil fuels, and we're, and we're going to move away from a little bit of the super technical discussion about nuclear, folks, into some broader questions. You know, fossil fuels we know are, are killing the planet dramatically. Uh, they yes. are an existential threat right now, uh, and and even. With Ukraine somehow moving policymakers to justify opening and expanding more leases of, of uh, oil and, and gas development here you know it's it's uh, it's an existential threat so how does nuclear power uh, when it is safe and running, how does it compare with fossil fuels
1: Well nuclear power once the power plant is built is does not emit uh, greenhouse gases so Unlike coal oil and, and natural gas, uh, there is no emission of, uh, of carbon dioxide or, or other gases. Uh, however, the construction uh, requires steel and concrete. And so the manufacturer of that is still heavily involved with, uh, with, with fossil fuels. When we, when we get to uh, green hydrogen, Uh, That's a a whole other story, but steel can be made with green hydrogen, uh, and concrete can be made with uh, captured CO2, so it can be a sink of CO2, a relative sink of CO2. You still need to uh, emit some at some stage, capture it, and then essentially put it back into the concrete as it sets. So... These technologies are on the way, and that, you know, that's another reason why it's uh, on a distant horizon and, and not immediate, and and will be accelerated if we transition to solar and wind, more use of hydro, especially pumped hydro, uh, and to some extent, biomass. Uh, so th- these are things that will cut down our greenhouse gas emissions and eventually lead to perhaps the use of, of nuclear energy.
0: So, so that, that brings up a good point because we know that um, what is completely uh, non-greenhouse gas emitting currently are wind and solar. And you mentioned hydro and biomass. So let's say if, if those things came into play with more research and development, more accelerated subsidy for those kinds of, of energy sources, and we brought those online faster, and so nuclear came on faster, how would nuclear power then compare with the renewables that got it there, like wind and solar, hydro and biomass.
1: Well, the great thing about nuclear power is that it is—it's—it's it's sort of always there. You don't require sunshine. You don't require the wind to be blowing. So it—it it would be a really good uh, source of what's called baseline power. So you know, if, when everybody is asleep at night, uh, there's still power needed in the grid and And it's well known all over the world what that uh, baseline power needs to be and then when the wind is blowing, you can use that uh, for additional power when the sun is shining you can use it or not uh, if you you generate it and either store it or deliver it to the grid uh, so nuclear is a, a, a would be a very good uh baseline power generation source, sort of always there, really reliable, uh, and not emitting, uh, carbon dioxide. It is, the, the, the issue being really is it is slow to turn on and turn off. So it, it instead of, you know, when the, suddenly the sun goes down, so the sun goes behind a cloud, you need, you need to boost the power immediately, uh, Batteries are good for that, but nuclear power takes hours to, to turn on and off. So you can't respond to a, a cloud going over the sun.
0: Well, And what about the installation sites themselves? I mean, in terms of like uh, land area or, or, or other things needed to house these different kinds of energy generating sources?
1: Well, the, the the size is comparable to a, a conventional gas or or coal fired uh, power plant. The, the, the area is not that much bigger. Uh, you see cooling towers, the same same kind of cooling towers you see at, uh, at fossil fuel plants. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the renewable energies, wind and solar, require greater acreage. Right, the uh, wind turbines are spaced apart, you know, several hundred meters, you know, several hundred yards apart in, in farm fields or at corners of farm fields. Uh, so they do occupy quite a lot of land. And solar panels uh, have a, a certain area, the, the generation, it depends on how much sunshine they get. So you spread them out and you get you get more generation. But conversely, they can go on the tops of buildings. We do We do rooftop solar all the time. And another trend is uh, to uh, agri-solar or combined agriculture and solar panels. So the solar panels go above the growing crops uh, with spaces in between them. So a certain amount of sunlight gets through for a certain part of the day. Uh, the crops grow just as well. They're getting enough, more than enough sunshine to keep growing. And water evaporation from the soil is reduced. So uh, it. It, it is a good combination to put solar panels on, on above uh, cropland, and and that is being done in more and more places as people realize the benefits of it.
0: And hydro is also uh, really being discussed a lot too, and it requires, I guess, the right landscape. So h-
1: hydro requires the right kind of terrain. You, know, you need you need a place to have a reservoir uh some of them could be natural i mean a a high alpine lake is is all right but it don't need a dam but most most places require a dam and that then of course floods the valley behind it and and you 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 lose a lot of the of the biology the the, Mm -hmm. bi
0: the the, the, yeah
1: the the ecosystem in that valley
0: right right um i'm thinking like powell as yeah. um, and, of course, if the levels drop low enough, then it can't generate electricity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so electric it's, got to be, yeah, it's got
1: to be high up, and uh, mm-hmm, it, you know, mm-hmm. so it's got to be the right terrain. And the, and the number of sites that are available now, we've built all the good ones. And so <laughs> you're looking at uh, less and less efficient uh, sites for uh, for hydroelectric dams.
0: So, so much of this requires a real, real major pivot away from subsidizing fossil fuels, which taxpayers pay for, and, and, and turning toward research and development for all these kinds of renewable energies. I, I know that's a big discussion because so much research and development has to move forward rapidly in order to bring these things online. I'm still cringing at the thought of uh, fail safe. I still cringe at that word because I'm like fail safe, right? You know, <laughs> right? And and that is totally different than like a Star Trek image of nuclear fission or fusion. I, I don't know. You can clarify. I mean, how does this whole thing fit into the renewable picture of nuclear fission? What is that?
1: So okay. So what we've we been talking about up to now is fission, meaning, meaning splitting atoms. Okay. Uh, so the,
0: splitting atoms.
1: <laughs> so the heavy atoms split, they're, and that, and that so these the uh, uranium and plutonium that I talked about are are really heavy, uh, and when when they break up, they, you, they get hit with a, a with a neutron, with a, a, a this elementary particle that makes them unstable, and then they typically in two pieces with a whole lot more neutrons. That's why it's a chain reaction because one splitting gives you a whole lot more neutrons that can make more splittings. And so that's what has to be controlled. Um, conversely, light nuclei like hydrogen, helium release energy when they're, uh, when they're combined, when they bind together. Uh, and that is another reaction that is a fusion reaction. Uh, they, they fuse together Uh and that releases energy as well. That's in fact how the sun is powered. The, the sun has a fusion reaction going on all the time. Uh, that is that requires additional energy. And what happens in a in a hydrogen bomb is that there's this, this uh, radioactive stuff. The uranium is used to compress hydrogen uh, nuclei together until they start to fuse and that then gives you this much more powerful explosion of fusing hydrogen or fusing hydrogen isotopes. We can do that now there's uh, fusion reactors have been built and have sustained the fusion reaction for A few minutes, I think, is the record, certainly seconds and and maybe now extending to minutes. So that's uh, but when I was a graduate student, fusion reactors were going to be the thing of the future Mm -hmm. and they're still a thing of the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are they are even further behind all of these uh, modern fission reactors uh, that have been developed. Uh, So they're not. On the horizon yet and uh lithium is another light light metal uh mm. it, so the the it's uh atomic weight is just a little bit more than helium uh so that is also a potential fusion fuel, and that is why you hear about dilithium crystals if you could take dilithium two two lithium nuclei fuse them together you get uh you get power energy out of that uh and and so star trek uh, are always searching for these uh, dilithium crystals which I, I it's a it's a plausible fiction right it, it's not not totally off the wall <laughs> no, but uh, they don't actually tell you how the dilithium uh, is formed what sort of uh, geological <laughs> geological deposits give you dilithium <laughs>
0: No, it just, it sounds like may the force be with you. Yeah. Crystals go, <laughs> yeah. You know, warp yeah. speed. I mean, it's great. It's a fun, but, but it does not sound like any kind of transitional fuel source.
1: Uh, no, no.
0: Okay. <laughs> Even further out than fission. All yes.
1: right. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. Wow. Wow. And, uh, anything more that you wanted to say about that?
1: Uh, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's, uh, that, that, that's the fusion story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's some good news coming along. I mean, there's a number of fusion reactors have uh, have reached break-even power. Oh, that's the other thing. These are huge reactors with big uh, coils with carrying lots of electric current uh, to contain this fusion reaction in the magnetic field. Uh, so, break-even, where you're getting more power out putting in, mm. uh, has has been reached in a couple of places. And then the containment time and so on is, is going up. So, so yes, there are, there's progress being made, uh, but it's not the uh, 30 years that was predicted when I was a graduate student.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So is it likely then, I mean, were the political will to be there, is it likely that we're going to be seeing nuclear power plants cropping up all over the place?
1: The the conventional fission, or are you talking about fusion again still?
0: No, I'm talking about conventional fission, the more likely one.
1: So, uh, yes, eventually I think they will be in in a whole number of places. They they have another advantage. The smaller ones, so-called small modular reactors, are portable. They can go on the back of a truck, you know, sort of a container-sized thing, uh, on a on a truck bed, so the shipping containers you see on being loaded onto these uh, transport ships. So about that size is possible, and so if there's a, a disaster, a, f- a flood, for example, uh, one of these could be shipped in to to supply emergency power if the if the power grid in that area goes down, and so it, that that. Could be another potential use uh, to take to take electricity to places where it's needed in an emergency.
0: And you're thinking then that installation is slow, ramping up in the the 2030s and 2040s, likely. Yeah,
1: i mean This. The, but but by, the, by that
0: time, by that time, they're, they're going to be competing with installed renewables.
1: That that is true. Yes. Yeah. So and and the price of renewables is coming down. So it's not. An economic argument—it's really a, an availability argument. Just building fast enough with enough enough uh, capital and, and manpower and uh, and the necessary materials to build all of this. So, yes, we we could probably do it, it with the proper will uh, and uh, pol- political will and uh, investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, It's a catch up game. I mean, Mm -hmm. there will be climate damage. It's already happening, but uh, we we could uh, we could minimize that damage by ramping up fast.
0: Mm. So now pivoting away from from the science, uh, moving more toward the climate justice movement and the climate justice movement is really promoting rapid, bold uh, action, including transition away from fossil fuels, but also in a way that's equitable with respect to, um, communities that have been on the front lines or very damaged, uh, by climate impact so far. What, what do you know, uh, Campbell, that the climate justice movement has to say about nuclear power as a source of energy? What are you hearing?
1: I'm, I'm not hearing very much really. I, Mm -hmm. I, the two, uh, to, to my knowledge have not been extensively discussed. I mean, I, I may have missed it. Uh, the, you can predict what the issues are going to be. Where are you going to put the nuclear plants? Well mm-hmm. coal fired and gas fired plants went close to communities of, the, of you know the disadvantaged communities, of, you know, inexpensive housing in fact lowered their lowered their property values as a result. So yeah, that's uh, So all, mm-hmm. that so that is an issue. Um on the other hand if they get a, a, a reputation of being cleaner and more reliable uh having one in the neighborhood might not be such a big disadvantage but that's that's going to take a massive change of public opinion which which takes takes a long time on well, the other I, I talked about uh you know if there's a disaster and a lot of uh uh disadvantaged people live in low lying prone areas mm-hmm. so one of these uh, small portable reactors could come in and, and uh, alleviate some of the, some of the problems of, of having power shut off uh, by by a hurricane or another kind of flood mm
0: hmm they're really, really, really going to have to prove the fail safe. <laughs> before, ex- exactly. Before anyone's yes, oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we're worried about chemtrails and we're worried about fuel trains and all kinds of other things, it's like the thought of, an even you know, somebody saying, oh, you got a safe nuclear reactor coming in to help you in an emergency yeah. or, or in your neighborhood near your kid's playground. It's going to be a while before I think people can make the emotional shift.
1: So it, it, is going to be a big shift and you know I think we have to uh get to several generations beyond the generation that had you know in the fifties you yeah. know duck duck and cover and all of this stuff that associated with with nuclear war, yeah. and then that got transferred to a couple of couple of uh nuclear power accidents you know, fukushima being the worst case mm-hmm. uh and people have to first of all, forget that uh, and then and then get over it and get confident in new technology and there's no guarantee that's going to happen i mean there is could it, you know it, it could go either way and and the operative
0: word I heard you say, just to kind of summarize in all this is the new technology because the energy source stays the same
1: the energy source
0: how yeah. it's been captured, transferred managed is what has created the problem in the past and so if it is going to be used again in any reliable way it has to be totally new technology
1: it it is yes well i mean not the splitting part but you know not quite total but yes it Mm -hmm. has to be the major changes in the technology in the in the fuel that's used in the uh, coolants that's used in the way the coolant is uh is circulated uh, and, and, and several other relatively minor things about pumping itself.
0: And it, I know in the, in the climate justice movement, I'm hearing that it's just not even financially feasible, that it's not a very financially feasible option, especially compared with um, some of the other like, like wind and solar technologies coming online. So uh, it will have some serious competition in terms of any kind of R&D investment. Um, or, or installation is that
1: yes yeah I'm not a, I'm not an economist uh and and you all you all have to think about uh, well what is what are the prices of materials going to be I mean if we're using all of this lithium for batteries I mean I know that's that's one thing people are talking about where do you find the lithium and what happens to the price of lithium and that are today's prices going to hold up as demand increases uh so there are a lot of issues like that that, uh, that I'm, I'm not really qualified to comment on. Mm-hmm. But today's, at mm-hmm. today's prices and costs cost of materials and manufacturing, uh, renewables are the choice, economic choice and non-emitting choice. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, we've, got to, we've got to make use of that. And, and then as the markets develop and, and more installation goes in, does the price stay competitive, or do other things become competitive
0: mm-hmm. i again i really I appreciate hearing from the the scientific perspective in in terms that I can at least fathom <laughs> <laughs> so I, I understand that basically what 's involved but also uh, just understanding that these things aren 't necessarily um, like a a turnkey you know there, there's there's a process of research and development there's a process of
1: installation.
0: There's a process of, of capture and transmission that we have to go through. And, it, and, it, and to rapidly transition to these things, it takes a tremendous amount of economic and political investment, right?
1: That is correct. Yes. And then we have not made it in the past. We're, uh, we're really only ramping up now when we should have ramped up 20 years ago.
0: 40 Right, right. There's a great great series on right now that PBS has put out frontline parts one, two and three called The Power of Big Oil. And and it uh, really is showing uh, a systematic effort on the part of big fossil fuel companies to abuse the science, abuse the science and to uh, literally halt any major policy changes to move forward with uh, renewables or away from fossil fuel. As a scientist, how do you feel about that? I can guess. Do you you want to say something to our audience about that?
1: Because it's immoral. Well, I'll I'll put it bluntly. It's criminal. It Uh should be prosecuted to every extent that the lawyers can figure out how to prosecute. Mm -hmm. I knew people who worked in the Exxon lab, Mm -hmm. uh, not really associated with our climate science, but Mm in the 70s. Exxon Lab in New Jersey was one of the top climate science research centers. Mm-hmm. And they were coming out in agreement with all the other climate scientists until somewhere at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s. They realized that if they went this path, their cash cow would, would die, that they, mm-hmm. the, the, the profits from drilling for oil would disappear and mm-hmm. so they, they essentially fired all their high level scientists uh, and or told them to change their tune uh, and, and started putting out all of this misinformation. And, uh, yeah, it, 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 it was and is criminal. And they're doing it again in the, with the plastics uh, industry and producing, producing plastics from oil so they can keep drilling.
0: Well, and we're going to do a podcast on that later, but that, you're right. That is a new business strategy. That's a business plan strategy, a pivot. Yeah. 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 And so it keeps going. Well, you know, every disaster movie, every disaster movie, whether it's a blockbuster or a B movie, uh, you know, begins with scientists trying to warn people about what's happening and those scientists are not being believed or they're not listened to. You know, Gre- Greta Thunberg, youth climate activist, screams in the streets, listen to the science, you know, <laughs> and Academy nominated film. Don't look up. Yeah. Future scientists trying to warn governments of an imminent disaster. So many of us today in, the, in our audience observe what has been called a war on science. And it is an intentional war. Uh, you just alluded to it. And, you know, by extension, that's a war on facts on fact-based truth and as someone who has spent your career your life's work producing credible science fact-based truth what would you want to say to people of conscience about what to do now to be part of the good fight against this war on science
1: well it it's all about education at at every level so uh, it 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 starts with uh kindergarten or maybe even earlier about about pointing out what you know what the science is to people to, to kids growing up uh, all the way through high school but I think you may be talking about adults and it's still education it's uh, it's it's training people who didn't get this in their youth to understand how science works how how scientists operate what what they do in the lab and and, and what good, careful scientists do to check their results, to compare the results with the results of other people, and to establish as much as we can. There are still mistakes being made, but to establish what is closest to the truth, not absolute truth. The scientists will tell you there is no absolute truth. If the experiment you do tomorrow may disprove the theory that you've had for the last 10 years. But that the chances of that happening get less and less as that ten year grows to twenty years, and, and the science appears to be solid. Uh, so you get to you know 99.9 percent confident that that is the truth, and it's a, and even there, there's even a mathematics about this. Uh, people talk about attribution science, uh, so they put a probability on it and if you went to las vegas with a 99.9% chance of winning you would probably take it <laughs> and on the other hand if you had a 0.1% chance of winning you would probably not take it and so uh getting that message across that uh you know science does evolve it's a process it is self-correcting process uh to try to eliminate the mistakes that uh, that that contribute you know when it was 10 years ago, it might have been 5% probability. Now it's it's a fraction of a percent probability that that something other than than greenhouse gas emission is causing climate change. So scientists like to be talking numbers, um, so they will say virtually certain when you know, the rest of the population hears that qualifier virtually. Well, what about that 0.1 percent? You go to go to Las Vegas with 0.1 percent.
0: Well, and you, what you raised there, which is, I think, one of our our final talking points, that's really interesting. I think for everyone to hear is, I hear you you mentioning those percentages in terms of the the scientific uncertainty which which grows less and less and less the more science it gets more and more confident about its findings and there's more of a consensus of findings. Yeah, and, and, and yet the opposition to any kind of move away from fossil fuels toward any of these renewables has just driven a wedge right into any of that uncertainty at all and has like created an entire c- counter argument to sort of discredit all of the other science. that That's have been their strategy.
1: That is, they are using that very small percentage that it was the phase of the moon that caused, that caused the temperature to rise so much. Yes, they, it's not a good example, but the phase of the moon does change the amount of heating on the Earth. <laughs>
0: uh, right, but that doesn't but,
1: mean... But, it, but it's yeah. a tiny, tiny oscillation uh you know on a on a monthly period that is neither here nor there, and certainly does not account for the magnitude of it, so all of these arguments the counter arguments that you hear are have you thought of this? Well, yes, and it may have an effect, but it 's a negligible effect or it 's a cyclic effect it doesn't lead to an overall trend in global global warming and uh and but these arguments persist. And uh, certain parts of the population pick them up, and uh, they, they they now doubt the the real science that mm-hmm. says this is the cause, and we're confident ninety nine percent plus
0: and growing, yeah,
1: and growing, uh, yeah, and the, so so the more experiments that are done that that 's what grows you have to, have to keep doing research and test all these other things and evaluate all these other things uh that that get thrown out. Uh, some of them you could just dismiss out of hand the the face of the moon being uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> being something mm-hmm. that clearly is not not there and that's and nobody's really suggested that. I just use that as an example mm-hmm. of 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 the types of things that that are being used to discredit the real science. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So speaking to people of conscience, speaking to people who are um, of, a, of a nature-based spirituality, um, who want to know, and, and, and among this national network of folks we're talking to, um, there are plenty of science geeks, there are plenty of scientists, there are plenty of people who are there, and then there are plenty of people who aren't, but who are listening to, who are bombarded with pseudoscience, how, how do you how did you decipher real science? How can someone decipher the average Joe and Jane? How can we decipher real science?
1: That's a really tough question, and, and there, I'll give you two answers. One is uh, education itself. So, so what I that starts with uh, with children of appropriate age. Uh, to learn what science is all about and to start to be able to evaluate. Mm-hmm. The other is to examine the credentials of the scientists that are presenting. Uh, so the, the the peer review is an amazing thing, and all the articles that have credibility. And you know there are other. Not everything is peer reviewed, but the the credible articles. Are peer-reviewed so the papers that pr- present the data and the analysis and all of that go out to other scientists who examine it and criticize it and even ask the authors to correct some some parts of it uh, before it gets published so that's already gone through an evaluation by competent scientists a lot of the pseudoscience Gets published in blogs and uh, uh, you know other uh, self self published papers and all sorts of things that are not peer reviewed but nevertheless are out there. Now this this really gets the freedom of speech right as a first First Amendment right. You can say anything you like, but if it's a lie, somebody has to call you out on it, and uh, that's so that's why science tries to eliminate the outlet lies and and even mistakes you know the uh, mistakes made in in good faith but nevertheless a mistake people in the future
0: and and that's also what we're trying to do here with green faith uh, circle ministry for our audiences uh in our national network as we're trying to bring you um information that's accountable because this is about accountability Uh, And it's not just a matter of self-proclaiming you're an expert. It's about really paying attention to what the experts um, have verified and what they're telling us and not wasting our time with anything else. So um, is there a last word you'd want to share with our audience here today, Campbell?
1: I would just say, listen, listen to the reputable scientists and try to tune out. Those that are not so reputable. If you can, if you can figure out which is which, <laughs> and, and that's the whole other story <laughs> to uh, to try to understand which is which. But uh, look at their publication list. I mean, that's that's not so easily done. But if you Google the names of the scientists, you'll find out where and what they've published, and that record. Uh, it's a little bit of research for people to do, but that record. Uh, will tell you the reputation of the scientists involved and therefore their credibility
0: if if someone were a layperson just wanting to to browse climate research aside from um, is there is there a source or two that you would recommend people can go to to get reliable reports about climate change
1: so uh, I actually started off uh, when i was learning the field, right? I'm a physicist in a, a chemistry background, material science background, uh, but I didn't study climate science. So first places I went were places like Wikipedia. Uh, th- that tends to be well curated and most of what you will read in there is is pretty accurate and has lists of citations as well. So that's a good place to get the overview. And if the list of citations looks reliable then there are there are very small chance that that is that it's pseudoscience being reported Really? Uh,
0: wikipedia okay
1: Wiki, wikipedia is, is the scientific community uh it, it, it occasionally it's